walking in a country and I've been chasing after my shadow. Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 65. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. We return to the Via Podiensis today, and we do so at a pivotal point in the journey. And really, it might start feeling a bit like Groundhog's Day around here, as we're going to begin today's walk and the next two all in the same place, Fijac. And no, I'm not sure if that reference to the Bill Murray movie will work internationally, but I'm going to stick with it. Why the repetition? Well, it speaks to the single biggest decision you face when walking the Via Podiensis. You have not one, not two, but three main different options to consider for walking from Fijac to Kaor, and I'm devoting a different episode to each. We start out today with the default approach, the one that sticks with the GR65 all the way, and passes through towns like Cajarc, Limon and Kersi, and Verrier. The majority of walkers follow it. But should they? I have my own strong beliefs on the subject, They'll probably leak through at different points across these episodes. And my travel companion for this episode, the Via Podiensis whisperer, Bronwyn Perry, has plenty of her own. The main thing I'm hoping to inspire, though, is some active consideration by new pilgrims about the possibilities. Know what's out there and find the right fit for you. The walk in this section proceeds from the Sele River in Fijac to the Lot in Kajark and then climbs to the Coste de Limon, before finally descending back to the lot in Cahors. After Cajarc and Limon and Kersi, most of the remaining villages are small and sparsely populated. There's a history at work here, of course, and a relatively more recent event in that history is the focus of the second half of this episode. If parts of this section feel abandoned, it's because they were. In the later decades of the 19th century, a phylloxera outbreak swept across France and the world, destroying vineyards and threatening the wine industry as a whole. All of French society was rocked by this. While wine production hadn't been central to this region, the damage done even here was sufficient to force many families to bail on their country homes and seek new opportunities elsewhere. I knew the headlines about that, but little more. As you'll hear, Bronwyn and I couldn't even get the name right in our conversation, a fault that rests squarely on my shoulders. Some hunting around online made it clear that there was a major story worth telling about this, and I found just the man to do it, Dr. George Gale, Professor Emeritus at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So, first up, we'll walk from Fijac to Kaor on the GR65 with Bronwyn Perry. And then we'll learn from Dr. Gale about how the very survival of wine was threatened once, and how it might be again. Bronwyn Perry of Melbourne, Australia, is an administrator of the GR65 via Podiensis, Walking the Le Puy Route in France Facebook group, and one of the most selfless, helpful Via Podiensis experts around. You are 
one of the most experienced people, maybe the most experienced people I know when it comes to walking the Via Podiensis. How many times have you been on the Via Podiensis now? I've been five times, but yeah. four times with the objective of going to the end. And of course, this year I was stymied a little bit by my bad knees. So I made it as far as Ersuladur. What keeps bringing you back? Well, a few things. See, definitely the landscapes. I mean, I just love to walk in nature first and foremost, and then to walk in those different landscapes, like to compare and contrast, like the Marguerite and the Aubrac with the lot and the courses country. Because I actually find the courses is really interesting. And when I walked in Sankiem, Le Désert this year, there was more courses, but it was different. It's really wild, rugged country, like parts of Scotland and Yorkshire, but it certainly harks to the more remote parts of Scotland. And I guess the language always brings me back because obviously it's a slow learner, but it just gives me that opportunity to practice French and to do it in a way that's current, you know, to have even if they're quite childish conversations in French, there's still an opportunity to learn and to build up my knowledge of French culture. I've established some quite, I wouldn't call them exactly friendships, but I have some friendships, but strong relationships, I suppose, with some of the accommodation providers. And I like to I mix it up, but I like to go back to places where I've been before. And that's a very warm feeling. It's a bit of both. It's definitely about people. It's definitely about landscapes, definitely about the path. Like I'll go back this year, but last year, because I missed so many sections and had to truncate sections because my knees failed, I'd like to go back and redo them because there's some little pieces where I haven't walked for five years, for instance. That's what keeps bringing me back. And I like to go in different seasons. So I see the landscape changing with the seasons, walking back through villages, especially when I haven't been for a while, just to see the changes. It's not that I haven't walked elsewhere because I've done walked on Stevenson. I've now done parts of the Chemin Sankiem, Le Désert. I've done the tour of Aubrac. But it's all part of that same thing. It's about landscape. It's about animals, about flowers. It's about hosts interacting with hosts and other walkers, of course. And so for landscape in this section, we're, we're going lot to lot. Well, I guess Saleh to lot to lot as we go from Fijac to Kaur, and we are going to cross the Kos along the way. We're going to break this into three stages, Fijac to Kaur. People will do it in four, they'll do it in five, sometimes in six. I think you said you did it in five, correct? Yeah, I did it in five. I enjoyed it, actually, the way I broke it up this year. Fantastic. And just a reminder... Everyone's going to break it up in their own way. There's no one correct way to do this. 
the first chunk, we'll call it, instead of just a singular stage, is going to take us from Fijak to Kajak, which is about 31 kilometers. So it's a long stage if you do it in just one day. So we're leaving Fijak. What sticks in your memory from those opening kilometers, that opening leg of this section? First of all, it's just something about leaving Fijiak and it's the historic centre of Fijiak, walking through the old streets, crossing the pedestrian bridge or the hiker bridge and suddenly you're back into suburbia almost, you know, you walk up through that car park. Yeah. That first little bit until you get back into nature, into the outskirts of town and then up into, up that hill into the forest. It's a bigger hill than I expect every time I do it. I know. That's exactly (laughs) what I thought. And it was, I think it was raining or trying to rain this year when I walked that stretch and I had forgotten. For me, walking uphill is less painful than walking downhill. So it was, it was okay. And we made it. I was walking with my Irish friend. We moved along at a decent pace to Faisal. I really enjoy walking into Faisal in particular. It's a lovely village. I've definitely walked that stretch a few times in different conditions, in different seasons. And this year I did it twice, second time in October. There aren't a ton of places on this section of the Chemin for getting a coffee in the middle of the walk. I guess that's what I'm getting at when it comes to Faisal. And you just know this where you hope the cafe is going to be open. And then there's just that gorgeous climb up to the centre of the village from the bottom of the village where you get those expansive views and then climbing up on that paved path. The flowers are just spilling over from the sides. The flowers, having seen it in May, it was a real contrast to then see it late September, October, and remembering that irises and buttercups were flowering at the end of May, early June, three years ago, and then to see it this year where it was still green, thank goodness, but nowhere near as interesting. It was a bit of a trek up there, but we were lucky and we just had a fantastic time in the cafe. So it was open. We were all dripping wet. We looked like beavers, I guess, or something akin to that. But they're not phased at all. There was about 10 or 12 of us inside. Normally I would sit outside on the veranda, but we were all inside and it was really convivial. So that's a highlight of that first stretch mm-hmm. for me is to stop at Faisal. And I've got great memories going back to my first time in 2014 of Faisal. The church, just the general ambiance, I guess, of, of the village. And, of course, it's very welcome to have somewhere to stop. Check your schedule to make sure it's not a Monday. <laughs> and I think it's the only day that they're not open. It's always crushing. When you find out that you've aligned with one of the hated closure days, which often is Monday on this route. But what can you do? Can't avoid it entirely. No, and that's what happened to us later on. So, of course, we continued on towards Bedaway and Mahtu Lakwa. 
We were quite keen to stop at Bedaway and have some lunch just when we're really hoping that the cafe at Bedaway was going to be open so that we could dry out because we found it closed. Uh, it's so disappointing, especially given that if you are walking the GR65, Bedway is a bit of a detour, not a huge one, but a little bit off route. And so you you go the extra distance to try to catch that cafe slash bakery and have some bad luck. Actually, I quite like that. For the first time, I think this year, I walked in there, took the extra time. So what is it, about 800 metres or a yep. kilometre or something? I quite enjoyed it because we were walking quite slowly. You I got to enjoy the magnificence of the shadow. It's lovely, yeah. So it was really worth it. And then I found the detour. So I made a stop. We ended up having lunch in a bus shelter of all places because the cafe wasn't open. There was nowhere else that seemed to have any sort of atmosphere. <laughs> and the bus shelter didn't either, except <laughs> we had the company of a lovely French lady. So the three of us sat in the bus shelter and... Afterwards, then we just made the D2 up behind there to reclaim the path. It's a pleasant enough detour because there's that wonderful view from the church mm -hmm. at Bedaway. I guess if you're making for Kajak, then you probably would continue on. But if you're hungry, it's a while until the next food stop because it's 20 kilometers from Fijiak to Grealu. If you have bad luck with Faisal or Bedouet, that's what you have ahead of you in the next stretch. Faisal fits in for like a morning departure, for just when you're ready for a pit stop and coffee or tea, maybe pick up something to eat later on. And then Bedouet fits in as well for the next petite pause. When you walked this this past year, where did you end your first stage? At Gorelu. Okay. So let's head that way now. Anything stand out for you on the way from Bedoué to Grelu? Not particularly. I think I'd have to refer to my photos. <laughs> it's a pretty unremarkable stretch in my memory. You know, one of the things that I like in this stretch, you mentioned the dolmens, which we will uh, encounter before too long. I also like the cassels, the small stone shepherd huts. Oh, yes, of course. That you pass along the way. But by and large, this is unpaved tracks, not many villages. It's quite easy walking. Yeah, it is. It's pretty gentle. There's a lot of dry stone walls as well. I think in both conditions, even in sun and rain, so the shaded sections of the path give you some protection. I've stayed at Grealu twice, so different places at Coasis um, the first time, this time at the Gite de la Fontaine. And definitely we all arrived this year looking a bit bedraggled because of the weather. Grealu, there's not a ton to that little town. There's a friendly little grocery store. Yep. Pilgrim friendly with some benches out front. Yes. Small sizes of things that you can purchase if you just want a couple cups of yogurt or a, a cold drink. It's a nice place to hang out and take a break. Yeah, absolutely. And they're very friendly, very attuned to having hikers come through. And it's obviously set up for that. We hope that they stay open. Yeah. Because there are plenty of places that have closed, smaller places. 
Yeah, it's tricky. These small village groceries, a couple of them along this route, including Greolu, where you you wonder how they make it work over the years. Yeah, it's a marginal existence. And I guess it's because they rely a lot on the support of the locals. And then during the season, they definitely rely on the support of people who are walking the paths to stop by. So yeah, we definitely stop there and always poke my head in the church, take a few photos around because there's also there some interesting um, historical art outside in that little square in front of the church, so the old water pump. If you get lucky, it can be quite photogenic. One of the things that stood out to me when I was rereading this section is that I am struck by how interesting some of the jeets seem in this stretch. And it made me wish that I would have been able to break up my walk more in this area. And you, you mentioned the ecoasis, which looks lovely. Oh, yeah. And there are just a lot of these old, august houses, country estates that have been repurposed as jeets that enjoy just peaceful countryside surrounding them. Yep, there's a, quite a few. Of, in fact, some of them, the big old ones, the stone ones, were abandoned when they had that outbreak of Phytophthora. They were just abandoned because then that savaged the vineyards and so people just left. So a lot of the big old ones, not all of them, but a lot of them, they've been reclaimed over the years. Well, I stayed in one this year closer to Kaor. I'm not sure about Echoasis, whether that was perhaps originally a farmhouse mm-hmm. and the Gite de la Fontaine, that's possible. That was, certainly didn't look abandoned, Fontaine, but Echoasis is a real standout. It's very popular and it's sizable. Great views over the courses and the surrounding countryside and excellent facilities. A swimming pool, I believe. Yeah, now they've got a swimming pool. <laughs> well, let's carry on from Grealu to Kajark because I know you get to do this fresh in the morning after staying in Grealu, but for me it's mm. warming up and it's the afternoon and I need to push ahead. And the one highlight that stands out to me in this stretch is we finally do hit our first dolmen. It's right on the trail, about two kilometers after Grealu, the dolmen Peche la Glaire. The trail comes right up on it. You don't have to do a thing. It's right there. Yeah, and just incredible. Like when if you haven't seen it before and you haven't even boned up on the history of them, because they're like ancient burial mounds, and it's just magnificent. It comes as a surprise because I think you come around a corner and all of a sudden you see the panel. And now there's also something else that's not far from there. It's not the dolmen, but the one of the new installations that they've been doing as part of windows on the landscape it was the first of seven or eight of them that are along the gr65 i think it's partly eu funded you do divert off the path but it's an easy diversion and really worthwhile they constructed out of stone it's basically die stone two tents joined It's intended as very basic pilgrim hiker accommodation or shelter with a fantastic setting, just high on the courses, 
it doesn't have the same drama or atmosphere, I guess, as some of the other landscapes that we walk through, but it's still pretty nice. And for me, that's a really interesting structure and adds another dimension to the walk. From there, not much sticks in my memory about the walk until the descent to Kajark. There are a couple of things, I think. So the path, it's where the a thousand hands on the Shaman have got various projects to kind of maintain and beautify the path and where you start to see the artwork in the stones where they've repaired the dry stone walls. So you start to see the paintings from that point between the dolmen at Peshla Glare and Supakeru down towards the descent into Kajak. So I think there's another cultural element that's coming in and it's quite intriguing. It is a very active association that some local departmental support Nilmar. So the thousand hands on the path. Anyway, that's one. And then of course you hit the descent and <laughs> my knees do not like that descent. <laughs> But it does provide really dramatic views across Kajak and to the lot. So I guess you just grin it, you grin and bear. It offers a little taste of the Sele Valley, I think. You're coming down the cliff's edge, yeah, true. the rocky footing beneath you. So if you like the dramatic scenery, then you know that the Sele Valley is ready for you next time you come through here. And if you don't like it, then you can reflect on the fact that you made a smart choice because this is really the worst footing and the worst descent that you will have to endure on this whole stretch, I think. Yeah, that's probably right. I think there was one other and I can't remember exactly where it was, but yeah, I found that was a bit of a shock the first time I came to that because I wasn't expecting it. But of course, we're coming from higher country on the courses country, you know, that limestone plateau down to the river. They're not going to wind you around all the little back corners and shady paths. Nope. Straight down. <laughs> and yeah, lots of stones. So it's um, it's quiet going. And for those of us who use hiking poles and who might have dodgy knees, <laughs> And you just take it carefully. Yeah. And you have a really nice town waiting for you. It's probably the most interesting town on this stretch. Yeah, it's a lovely town. Birthplace of Francois Sagan, who I read a lot when I was a teenager. So I sought out her birthplace to take photos and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a nice town. It's got a perfect little medieval core. It's right on the, the Lot River. So you've got the riverside close by. Yeah, beautiful. Lovely church in the middle. There's a lot going for it. And very interesting little back streets if you've got time. And because we walked from Greerloo to stop there, I've always had time to spend and to wander the back streets and find the oldest building in town find the river, find Francois Sagan's birthplace, 
just some really interesting buildings and it's the layout is not complicated like it's hard to get lost it's quite vibrant as well I was there this year on a Sunday so it wasn't as lively as it was the previous time but it was not disappointing and we found the only cafe that was open so that was enjoyable because that was the liveliest place it was the only and the liveliest place in the village lots of cafes and restaurants they have a huge festival there I think it's in August the Africa Jacques festival over three days so it's kind of set up for welcoming visitors absolutely the other highlight I don't know why but it still intrigues me is their little miniature Eiffel Tower (laughs) as you walk into the village. Yeah. All right. So that's depending on how you do it. That's one stage or two stages down along this walk. And so then the next one or two, depending on how you think about it, is Kajak to Vare, which is 27.5 kilometers with Limon and Kersi in the middle of that as the only other town of decent size standing between us and Kaor. The walk out of Kajak follows the Lot River for a little ways and then eventually crosses the lot and climbs up on the plateau on the other side. It's a lovely exit and it's very gentle with the river on your left and the plane trees. There's a magnificent community garden on the right. They're a highlight to me. And then you get to the barrage and that very steep path that they <laughs> fortunately paved it. But nevertheless, just as you're kind of in a dream world of gentleness and beauty, all of a sudden then you have to use your legs to <laughs> climb up that path. It's a cruel ascent, but necessary. Yep. And it makes for a gentler walk the rest of the way. Absolutely. And this is the last we'll see of the lot then for a couple of days. Yeah, because then we're walking really across the courses for the next two days, roughly. Yeah, back into very rural area, some very tiny villages along the way, but really not much. Once you leave the lot, it's pretty open and empty until you come up to the, the edge of Saint-Jean-de-Laure. This is all part of that area that was abandoned. It's relatively remote. Again, a lot of dry stone walls, shady paths, takes you back to that time when that Phytophthora was obviously rampant and all these what must have been little vineyards were abandoned. So it changed the landscape and changed the agricultural activity forever. Yeah. And it's pretty easy walking. And I think that when you come to the little villages, it, you always look forward to it because it just breaks up the stages, breaks up the day. Barrier is where we arrive and there's a little local grocery store, a pissery that doubles multi-services. But you're getting ahead of us a little bit. We have a lot of those little villages to get through. Saint-Jean-de-Lore, were you there in season for the snack bar that is... You bet I was. And the lovely colored shells that are all marking the display there. The curtain of shells. 
It's about 10 kilometers into the walk, and it's the, the first chance to sit down and have a nice drink. I got the most amazing reception there. So I've been there, and I always think of it, because to me it's kind of symbolic of this whole section is the curtain of shells. Yeah. All hand-painted, I guess, by either the association or just by Pierre himself. When I was there first time round, it wasn't open, so I guess it was the only day that he wasn't there. It might have been a Monday. This time he was there. He and his wife came out from the shed, um, the hut, to welcome me, ask me where I was from. Back he goes and he puts on our national anthem, the Australian <laughs> national anthem, playing full blast on his little boombox. Yeah. That he has set up. <laughs> so he has music. It's just a fantastic experience. Yeah. You can easily do it with the shells alone. That's enough. And there's picnic tables there. There's a shelter. There is a little outhouse. I took a look at it and I decided, no, (laughs) not for me. When they're there, Pierre and his wife, it's just a wonderful, hospitable experience. It's another one of those places you hope that you can be there when it's open. The next chunk of this walk is about eight and a half kilometers to Limon, Limon and Kersi. This is the most populated section where you pass through Mar de Matu, Mar de Boyer, Mar de Delat. I don't know. Have you been in Mar de Delat when the walking stick artisan is open? He was open, but I must admit I didn't stop there because we were in sight of Mazdagam, where we were staying at La Hulot. So we kept on. By that time, we were a little bit hot and bothered. We were ready to take another pause. And so we didn't stop there, but I did notice that he's there. Beautiful work. Not collapsible like your trekking poles, though. So a little bit less convenient. They're the sort of things that I, when I walk again, I remember that I haven't I haven't stopped there for whatever reason, and so then I purposefully go back to stop there. What do you recall about Limon? An interesting village, I think. It's quite attractive, and it's got in a similar sort of layout to Kajar. There's a slight rise uphill, and it's I find the layout of the village attractive. But both times I have not stayed in the village itself. So I guess my recollections are a little bit sketchy. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely more drawn to Kajak than Limon, but I appreciate having a supermarket to hit in this section because those are hard to come by. Yeah, they are. There's some public transport there if you need it. That's something I did notice from this year, <laughs> bizarrely. <laughs> and a few cafes and pretty treed square. I think that a lot of people probably don't always stay right in the heart of Limon. Mm-hmm. They're staying, you know, perhaps on the outskirts because there's quite a lot of accommodation coming in and going out. And so in this last leg of the section towards Verrier, you have another dolmen just off route, the Dolmen du Joncos, which I enjoy. It's just a hundred meters or so off route. 
That's right. It's worth a 100-metre walk, but I suspect a lot of people don't bother. Which, frankly, is also part of the charm. (laughs) That's true. It is part of the charm. And again, those paths out of Le Mans, to me, are really, there's an attractiveness about them that is in that it's gentle walking. It's not challenging at all underfoot. You've got some cultural historical interests with the dolmens and the dry stone walls, and it can offer some shade if it's a hot day. And there's a good chance it will be. Yes. And so you already touched on Verrier before, so the small hole in the wall, Epicerie, there's the restaurant, Pleasant Enough Church. The village houses are all clustered around the, you know, the heart of the village. I've learned, not that I've stayed, but I've learned there are at least two new-ish accommodations almost in the centre of the village. It's a really pleasant rest area. Again, the setup at the Epicerie and Depot de Parcs, there's no belongerie there, is really helpful for hikers and pilgrims. This is your last chance to buy groceries for Kaur. So it's an important thing to bear in mind. Oh, yes. All right. So we head into the last chunk now. Another long stage, if you were to do it as a single stage. And in a warm part of the year, it is exposed and hot. 32 plus kilometers from Verrier to Kaur. Yeah, that's a long. So I definitely break that up. Yeah. Where did you stay along the way? Pudali. And before that, I've stayed at Lal Bank. Pudeli is super popular on a warm day, you know, in the summer or in autumn. Last year, there was, you know, a lot of hot weather in, even in May. I guess I knew that, so I'd always break the stage up. You hope that it's going to be easy walking If not for the heat, then yeah, easy walking for sure. That's when you really value those shady stretches. Mm -hmm. So there are a few shady stretches. And I know we took advantage of them to stop and take a, a lunch break, for instance. There are a few highlights, I think, in this section. For me, one of the most exciting surprises last time around was La Lune, the snack area just outside of Verrières. Oh, yes, it's right in that wooded... You're just walking on a dirt road and all of a sudden there's a cafe off to your right and it's wonderful. Yeah, La Lune de Quatre Saisons. Yeah. I did try to stop there, but of course luck would have it. it was... <laughs> since the epicery was open, then it was bound to happen, wasn't it? So... Yeah, as, as long as one of them is open. Yeah, and I think that some people will be disappointed for that stage because it's on a section where you really are hoping for opportunity to take a pause. I think it's very welcome, La Lune, because it's shaded and certainly looks friendly. Yeah. The village of Bach is welcoming, a really nice pilgrim rest stop right at the very end of the village. Yes, and... Post office. That's right. On if you need to send something home because you've had enough time carrying this, and it's got a nice enough church. I've always taken advantage of the picnic tables outside the church, right in the heart of the village. 
La Bourdie, the restaurant. I've never timed it right to actually <laughs> stop there. It's only open for like two hours a day. Yeah. I think there's one evening opening, but it's likely you're not going to be walking there. You're going to be done with that. But the Pilgrim rest area outside the village, it's very welcome, really well set up. There's bathrooms there or toilets and bench seating, hooks to hang your backpack. There's somewhere to wash. And I'm guessing, I'm not sure whether are they, are they catering for campers? Casual campers. Yeah, it would work. It's helpful. So if it's miserable weather, then it's a nice little place to stop and shelter. And you definitely catch your breath there before you continue on. And there's one other thing that stands out to me just after that, which is the detour that you can make to the monastery, Veilatz. You haven't stayed there, have you? No, I haven't stayed at Veilatz, but of course, it's on my bucket list. <laughs> me too. It didn't work out for me in terms of timing this last year. They were closed on the night that I tried to stay there. So maybe next time. I think it's a rather special experience because it's another one where they have refurbished and renovated a large convent in a beautiful setting and it's shared with local residents. It doubles as an aged care facility, I believe. It's definitely on my list. You ask me, why do I keep going back? Well, there's another reason <laughs> to keep going back. I haven't seen that one. I really, and I think it's a, a sweet little village. And again, there's a cafe restaurant that seems to have reasonably long opening hours. I hit that one on a closed day. I had a very unfortunate timing in Baylats. So it goes sometimes. Pudali was also closed the day that I passed through. So Are you kidding? Uh, yeah, so I had to carry on to Lepesh. It was a very long day, but all's well. I survived. Are we stopping at Pudeli yet? Let's go there. Tell me about Pudeli. Pudeli. So I have wanted to stay at Pudeli for as long as I can remember. <laughs> it is just a totally unique experience. Some people might get the impression it's like a military operation, but I had the a wonderful welcome. I, I did luckish because they are closed. You do have to get your timing right there. Two nights, I think they close on the weekends. Now that they've got children, it was actually pretty busy the night that I was there in October and Manu was on duty, so I'd never got to meet Elsa, but it is just a great setup. You walk in and one thing that struck me was the pleasant entrance, so the shady entrance, big tree, picnic tables and deck chairs where you could just take a pause if you were continuing on and the beautiful stone house and just a very gentle atmosphere. We were welcomed early. It was a warm day. Manu welcomed us before the check-in time of three o'clock. My friend and I, Eileen and I had private rooms, but he made a big point of, of saying, make use of the swimming pool. So they've also put in a swimming pool. Oh, what? that was just fantastic. We were warm enough. So again, we're a little bit hot and bothered because the sun had been pounding down all day and we were kind of done. So we really appreciated 
the areas where you could do your washing and hang it out to dry easily. So made use of every available bit of space there. It's well set up for that. And there's a outdoor terrace that is both shady and sunny. And the way they've set up the swimming pool, it's not sitting out there on its own. There's a shower and a fantastic rest area. I guess you might call it a cabana, but I'm not sure of the right word. It's in timber. It's very attractive. Built-in divans with cushions. So it's just a great little rest area. And more people were making use of that as well as the terrace where the tables are, where I guess they might occasionally serve meals. It was just really convivial. So it certainly exceeded my expectations. They've really thought it out carefully. Despite the fact they've been there for at least 10 years, they've still got the energy and they're just continuing to develop and change their offering. So in their shared rooms, in their double rooms and twin rooms, in their private rooms, with the swimming pool, with the meals, lunches, even that. We ordered lunch there because the next stretch into Kaua, we knew that it was just going to be For us, it was going to be challenging because more hot weather and the way that's even organised, the way you collect your lunch in the morning, it's labelled and it's just everything is just made so easy. And that really suits people who, if you're facing a hot day and or you're continuing on, I guess, then if you're staying there, you can get up and leave at whatever time you like. So it's got a lot going for it. And you might want to wake up early because it is 18 and a half kilometers from there into Kaur and it is barren. Yeah, it is barren. And I would say because a lot of that section of the track, there are fewer shady sections. My friend and I definitely hoofed it this year. We eventually did find a shady section You're just hanging out for that on a warm day. If you're blessed with a mild day, it would be quite pleasant and you would enjoy it. You wouldn't enjoy it either if it was raining because there's just nowhere much to shelter. I think there's a real risk of heat stroke on that section. It's important to drink as much water as you can and if you can find the meagre shade that's on offering. And then know as you finally make that descent into Kaur and you enjoy the view and you ignore your knees' protestations, once you get over the lot, the Pilgrim Welcome Center is there on the left with drinks ready for you. <laughs> you need it. Uh, <laughs> said, for anyone who's got damaged knees, I think that a lot of people, regardless of the state of your knees, would find that descent quite challenging. It's not made any easier by the it being a paved surface. If you luck it for a mild day, then okay, it's probably made a little bit easier. But on a hot day when the sun's blazing down or on a wet day, then you're going to find that descent is pretty tough going. And you just think, oh, when you get to the bridge, it's fantastic. And they're so generous. Yeah, they're wonderful. So you're in Kaur now. 
Yes. You've had a cold drink. I have. We're blowing past the timing for this episode. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on core. But what are the number one or two things that are on your list for when you make it back to Kaur? Okay, what's on my list? So apart from the Pilgrim Reception Centre, L'Octroi, on the bridge, I would always go across the way to Camino Lock and spend some time there. Always very welcoming. There'll be a change of reception there because Muddy has relinquished his role, but I'm absolutely certain will be no different. So anyone who's got sore feet or just in need of a compassionate ear, make a beeline for, and I would always recommend it because it's all so nice. If you are missing a bit of kit, it also can prod your memory. When I've stopped there before, I just always buy a fresh pair of the insole, super feet insoles. Take a break. There's always um, another cool drink on offer. It's just a nice atmosphere. And I know that plenty of people stop there and buy something. I better not say exactly how much I bought there this year. But anyway, <laughs> I would stop at Camino Lock. I would then walk up the Rue Gambetta and stop at the main central plaza area next to the tourist information office. So the Office of Tourism has very well staffed. There's a pleasant outdoor cafe restaurant. I've stopped there too for drinks. It's a really good meeting spot. And this year I definitely had some unexpected encounters with people that I'd met earlier who I didn't expect to see and they'd stop there. So it's a central place. I always go to the cathedral. Of course. And if it's a market day, I mean, that can be accidental for a lot of people, depending on when you're there. But if it's at the end of the day, certainly it's a beer, it's a cold drink, gin and tonic, whatever. San <laughs> Pellegrino, Badois, you name it. That's generally, I guess, as far as I would go. It's a nice wander up the Rue Gambetta. Yeah. So we've made it from Fijiak to Kaor. And the last question I want to ask you, since you have walked this multiple times, you've walked through the Sele Valley multiple times, you have more to do on the Rocamador route, but you have now experienced a chunk of it. Mm -hmm. You have this frame of reference that not a lot of people have. So what is the argument for following the GR65 through this stretch? Okay. Um, <laughs> right. The arguments are, so they're not necessarily um, at the top of my list, mm -hmm. but I think it's gentle walking. It's the traditional way. And a lot of people, even if they deny it, are traditionalists. So it's a traditional way. I think that it's not such hard going underfoot. Mm-hmm. And there are some attractive elements and attractive historical cultural elements. So I think this, a lot of the villages are really quite sweet. The dry stone walls, some of the shaded paths bordered by those dry stone walls make it attractive. And there are some real standout accommodations on that section. I think that makes sense. I know that both of us are advocates of the Sele Valley. Mm-hmm. It can be challenging walking, and 
this definitely is a, a less demanding route. It's definitely less demanding. Impression I get for people who walk this and don't opt for the Selle or the Voie du Rochemandor is that it's because it is the it's the traditional way. So it's that set out before you in the guidebooks in different languages. It's first and foremost. It's the GR65. So if you haven't walked before, you don't know any different. Yeah. There are some elements of it that, for me anyway, are really interesting. Perfect. Well, Bronwyn, thank you for sharing so many insights on this section. And, of course, you are always sharing insights on the GR65 Via Podiensis Facebook group. And so I appreciate always everything that you have to share on that as well. Dr. George Gale is Professor Emeritus at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, with expertise in the realm of the history and philosophy of science. He's the author of Dying on the Vine, How Phylloxera Transformed Wine. Well, let's start with this. Just on a basic level, what is phylloxera? Phylloxera is a bug. Most particularly, it's an aphid. And an aphid is a bug with a sucking apparatus that it can insert into the stem or the trunk of a plant. And the problem with phylloxera is it has a very, very complicated life cycle. It basically has two lives. It lives part of its life in the soil when it lives on the roots of plants. Then it graduates and evolves into a beast that lives in the air. At that point, it stops sucking on the roots and begins to suck on the leaves. So this really raises problems because if you live in an area where the bug is only sucking on the roots, you don't know that it's the same bug that's in someplace else sucking on the leaves. And as it turns out, when it was in France, it only sucked on the roots. And when it was in the States, it only sucked on the leaves. And so it, it took about seven years for the scientists in the two countries to finally realize that it was the same bug that was working in both places. So that was one of the real difficulties. The bug had always existed. The bug had always existed in North America. In North America. So I'm, what I'm curious about is this becomes a massive problem for France and for other countries in the mid-1800s. Every, every place in the world that it wasn't. So what triggers that? Why does that happen in the mid-1800s? Steamships. Because before, when vines were moved, well, I should also say botanists, when the age of exploration started, plants got moved around. I mean, pepper plants, potato plants, and all the plants from the New World got moved around. But they were moved around slowly because of sailing ships. And so when the grapevines got moved, they took a long time to get from the new world to the old world. And whatever pests were on them, the pests died during transit. Okay. Well, when steamships came in and the transatlantic travel, oh, in the 1840s, all of a sudden the pests stayed alive in the transatlantic trip. And so all of a sudden they had problems in Europe 
with North American pests. The first one was a powdery mildew. They never had it before, but they imported some American vines that, well, there was one vine, a vine that we call Isabella, that's very, very pretty. The leaves are gorgeous and it makes a really nice looking grape. And so they imported lots and lots of Isabella because it was so beautiful and they put it up in gardens all around Europe. Unfortunately, it had this mildew on it. And so in the late 1840s, the mildew spread all throughout Europe because the European vines had no defenses against it. They'd never seen this mildew before. So that was the first big disaster. Unbeknownst to them, they were also bringing in this bug on the roots, the phylloxera roots. But in the States, the bug on the roots, it didn't bother the American plants because they'd grown up with this bug and they had defenses. Mm -hmm. In the States, where the bug bothered the vine was on the leaves. So the American vines could live with the bug on both the leaves and the roots, but it only just tolerated them. But when the bug got to Europe, it discovered the European roots and just smacked its lips and went crazy. Because <laughs> the European roots had absolutely no defenses against this bug. So it just took off. And, and within 20 years, it was everywhere in the world, including Australia and South Africa and Northern Africa and South America. So every place that they were growing European grapevines ended up with the bug. All the places that had been colonized by the European wine-growing nations ended up with the bug. It was just disastrous. People listening might think it's just a little bug. How much damage can it do? <laughs> but you're saying disastrous. Just how big was the threat to the wine industry in France? At the time when the bugs started chomping, roughly 20% of the French economy depended on wine. By the end of the 1870s, the French economy had collapsed. The appraisal that the economists made around 1900 was that the disaster of phylloxera cost the French economy more than the Franco-Prussian War of the 1870s. Wow. Yeah. And it caused, let me just say this, in my estimate, the disaster caused by this bug, this tiny, almost microscopic bug, is the largest agricultural disaster in human history, way bigger than the Irish potato famine. Wow. And it caused massive migrations. For example, here's just one case. It's a case I actually know a little bit about from personal experience. When the bug wiped out Bordeaux in France, the big Bordeaux wine companies went down to Yugoslavia, what became Yugoslavia. They went down to Croatia. And within five years, in 1890 to 1895, they made an investment of 10 times greater of vineyards in Croatia than there had been. Hmm. So they expanded the Croatian vineyard area by 10 times in that five-year period. So by the time of the expansion, the economy in Croatia was just absolutely dominated by the wine industry. Everybody worked there picking and growing grapes for export. Then by 1900, the bug arrived in Croatia, of course. <laughs> it hadn't been there before because there weren't any grapevines, there weren't many grapevines. But it arrived and within five years, the industry crashed. And so what happened? All the people who were in the wine industry migrated. 
And so if you look at the migration trends in the United States in 1905, you find that Chicago and Kansas City, for example, have huge influxes of Slavic peoples who then take over the meat slaughtering industry. And so if you go to Kansas City, Kansas, for example, where the stockyards used to be, there are still Orthodox church towers down there, the onion-shaped domes in Kansas City, Kansas, from the influx of Yugoslavians in 1905. And the same in Australia. There's huge Slavic impact of population movements in 1905 to 1910 in Australia, and they took the vines with them. <laughs> and of course, the bug took off. But what Australia did that was different from anybody else is they imposed absolutely strict embargoes and quarantines. And so Australia is the only country that has been successful in keeping the bug down via quarantines. But part of that is because of their climate. Mm -hmm. It suppresses one of the life cycles of the bug, the climate does. So they've been lucky in that regard. But it's constant, constant battle. I mentioned to you that this conversation is going to be linked in the podcast to the Lot Valley and the Kaur area. Right. What was the impact of phylloxera there? It was disastrous. The Lot Valley is kind of in between the two centers where the bug hit in France. The major center where it hit was in the Rhone Valley. That's where the first big infection started was in the Rhone Valley. And then the bug moved slightly north, but mostly toward the west. But there also was an infection site in Bordeaux along the Garonne River. Now the Lot River empties into the Garonne, the south of Bordeaux. So basically what happened was the Lot River Valley was caught in a pincher's movement hmm. between the infection coming in from the east and the infection coming in from the west. And the pincers closed in 1883. At that point, the numbers I've read show that there were 140,000 hectares, which is about 220,000 acres of vines. Nothing very distinguished because it, they were just growing there mostly for private use with a little bit of ordinary wine being made, but lots and lots and lots of vines. Mm -hmm. And the phylloxera hit and absolutely wiped them out. And they were down from what I've read. They came out of the phylloxera epidemic with 4,000 hectares. They lost 90% of their vines. And they didn't recover until 1920s, 1930s. And they still didn't have a really well-known district. The big grape there is the Malbec, which was accepted in a minor way in Bordeaux but it was the chief grape that was grown in the Lot Valley, but it never achieved any real renown. It wasn't until it was taken up in Argentina and really worked on in Argentina that it was realized that you could really do something with the Malbec grape. And so the Argentinian Malbec got really, really famous. And they were starting to work with it in the Lot Valley in the 20s and 30s. But then in 1956, the famous freeze of 1956 wiped out all the Malbecs in the Lot Valley. So that was their second disaster. The freeze of 56 was awful all over France. The only vine that did fairly well against it was Merlot. Merlot has a bit more frost tolerance than a lot of the other grapes. So what happened was after the frost of 1956, 
the wine people in the Lot Valley and especially around Cahors replanted with good strains of Malbec and started really seriously working with the grape. And finally, in 1971, they got their appellation to Controller with all the rigor and the discipline and everything that that takes. And it was at that point that the Cahors region and the Lot Valley finally came into its own as a high-quality wine district. But it took 120 years to actually to really recover from phylloxera. The disaster was that big. How did the rest of France overcome this disaster? What was the solution for managing phylloxera? Basically, it took 30 years. Okay. They tried a whole bunch of things. It's actually very complicated. There were three stages. Okay. The first stage was do anything. <laughs> Plant American vines like Concord and Catawba and learn to live with them because they don't like Concord wine. I mean, th there's quite a bit of difference between Concord, Manischewitz, and Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that Concord in France is not very resistant to the bug anyway. Oh. Because the French soils are so different from our soils. So a Concord that's healthy in Massachusetts, let's say, is not healthy in uh, Languedoc in France. So... The first phase was they found some people in Missouri, the big nurseries in Missouri. People went out in the woods and cut down wild grapevines and just sent the cuttings to France. In 1876, I think it was, something like 3 million cuttings, wild cuttings, were sent to France. And they just planted them everywhere. They just had to have some kind of grapes. The wine was terrible, but they had wine. That was all that counted. But the wine wasn't successful and the grapes weren't successful. So then what they tried was they discovered that you could flood the land if you had a supply of water and the land was flat, and that would knock the bugs back for a year. And so the rich estates in Bordeaux and in Burgundy built walls around their land, and you can still see the walls. They're still there in some of the places in Bordeaux. And they would flood it every year, and that would knock the bugs back for the season, and then they'd grow the grapes and make the wine. And then the wines would go dormant in the fall. And then they'd flood it for 33, 34 days, knock the bugs back, and get another harvest. Wow. They also discovered that you could plant in sand. Because if the soil was over 50% sand, the bug couldn't live in it. Now, of course, the problem is that when you plant vines in sand, there's nothing good in the sand for the vine. Mm. And the wine is horrible. But it's wine. <laughs> <laughs> And it's always right along the seashore. The winds are terrible. And they never had more than 60,000 acres of vines in the sand. And they only had a couple hundred thousand acres of wines that were flooded. So there was never enough of wine from those sources to cover what was needed. But then the people at the University of Montpellier discovered that it was possible. And this had been known about apples since the time of Pliny the Younger in, in Rome, that you could take one apple and graft it onto another apple. And what the scientists at Montpellier discovered was that you could take a French top with the good grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon and graft it on an American root because the American roots could slough off the bug. They, they were adjusted over evolutionary times. They learned to live with the bug. So you could have an American root in the ground, and the bug didn't bother it. Mm -hmm. And then above ground, 
you had the French top with the French grapes. Hmm. So they ended up doing exactly that. And this was discovered variously about 15 years after the bug first hit. And they'd failed with the American Concords and so on. And they discovered that if they grafted, they could make just about as good a wine as they used to make. But they had to learn how to graft. They had to learn which vines would work as the understock and learn whole new techniques of how to plant them. They had to just absolutely change all of their farming techniques and everything to work with the new grafts. And the way they used to plant everything was they just used to randomize it, randomly plant it in their land. But because they had the grafts and they had to use machinery to harvest and to plant, they had to start planting in straight rows, for example. Oh, okay. So all of their techniques had to change with the phylloxera. By 1900, most of the French vineyards were grafted. So American roots, French tops. But the guys at Bordeaux had made another discovery. And that was that if you made a genetic cross with an American parent and a French parent, sometimes you got lucky and you got French fruit and American roots. Mm. So the people at Bordeaux decided that the future would lie with crossbreeding to get a genetic mix rather than a physical mix that you got with grafting. Okay. As it turns out, the long-term solution is that. I mean, we're at the point now, 150 years later, where it's realized that grafting was only temporary. 150 years is temporary in the wine business <laughs> because now we're at the point where the genetic crossing is good enough that there are wines now that the French are approving. And in fact, just two days ago, they approved a whole new six vines from LM Bouquet's work at the University of Montpellier that were approved for Appalachian Control A, which is the top level of quality. And they've got genes in them from some Florida grapevines that are resistant. They're not going to have to be sprayed and they're resistant to the bug. The whole word now, of course, is sustainability. Yeah. The future is these hybrid crossings, genetic crossings of American and French vines. But it's taken 150 years to get the prejudice away because the thing was, it was the American vines that caused the trouble. <laughs> and so there has been a, a prejudice in France and in the other wine-growing countries against the American vines because they caused the trouble. How could we be rescued by the American vines if they were the ones that originally caused the trouble? So that was called the great American paradox. I feel like that's analogous to a lot of things with how America interacts with the world. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is funny. I knew nothing about this. So, of course, I just Googled it. And I found a series of headlines on different websites like how Missouri saved Europe's wine industry, how Texas saved right. Europe's wine industry, how America saved Europe's wine industry. And right. so a lot of people trumpeting. America as the savior of Europe when we also contributed to the problem in the first place. Yeah, first we killed them, then we brought <laughs> them back to life. <laughs> and Missouri did save them and Texas did save them. Yeah. They each have a decent claim. It seems like a nice story that in the end, what was necessary was international collaboration. As a matter of fact, I make that case in my book that two really interesting things happened. This was the first really good example of international scientific cooperation mm -hmm. because scientists from Missouri and scientists from France interchanged significantly during this. 
I mean, they visited each other's sites as well as with payments from the government sponsoring the trips, as well as having communications back and forth. Plus, it was the origin of big science and big tech in France, with the government paying for stuff. One thing I did not mention was that they also tried to find an insecticide that would kill the bugs. And they ultimately did. But it was very expensive, and it was tricky to use. But the rich estates could, of course, afford to do it. They had to gin up a whole new industry to manufacture the insecticide. And so they built huge plants along the Rhone. And that's where all the pharmaceutical companies ultimately evolved from, was from these plants that were built along the Rhone to make the carbon disulfide for the insecticide. So it was the beginning of big science and big industry in France. Wow. All of this coming out of the Viloxera crisis. And then do we have a happy ending? The threat of phylloxera has been permanently eliminated? I wrote a paper that was published in 2003, and it's still, it gets about three or four hits a week. It's posted on the net. It's called Saving the Vine from Phylloxera, a Never-Ending Battle. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. The Californians grafted the same as the French did. They learned how to do it from the French because the bug got loose in California in the 1860s and wiped out the wine industry. It wasn't native to California because it had been stopped by the Rocky Mountains. It was only in the eastern U.S. And there had never been any really native vines in California except Vitus californica, which is just a harmless little vine that made shitty little grapes. So when they brought the European grapevines to California, they flourished. And a big industry grew up, but then the bug hit. And of course, what happened was it came over with the pioneers in, the, in their wagons with the Concord grapes from Massachusetts and so on. Bug got loose in California, wiped out all the grapevines. So the Californians learned from the French that they had to graft. So what they did was they sent some scientists from Cal Davis, which was then called the California University Farm. This is 1920 or so. They had a guy work on a program to test different vines as rootstocks all sorts of different vines that the French had tried and so on, and Native American vines. And Lloyd found a few different vines that worked in different areas in California quite well, specialized to different terrains in California. But the university didn't like this, and the nursery people didn't like this. What they wanted was a universal rootstock that worked well enough every place in California that would be economical so they could use one style of grafting, one rootstock, the nurseries would only have to do one thing. And so they settled on this rootstock called A&R1, which was from France, Aramon times Rupestris number one. Those are the names of the parent grapes that make this rootstock. Now, the French guys told them this is not a good rootstock because in some terrains, it's going to break down. And in fact, the South Africans had tried it and it broke down in South Africa. The phylloxera got loose in South Africa, and they had to rip everything up that was on A&R1. But the Californians said, screw it, we're different. <laughs> you find this everywhere in France and everywhere around the world. The, the guys in Champagne said, oh, it can't happen here because we really take good care of our vines. And the guys in the South, they're a bunch of Southerners, and they don't take good care of their vines. That's why they've got this bug. We'll never get the bug. And of course, five years later, they're decimated <laughs> in Champagne. This exceptionalism is just everywhere. 
-hmm. And the Californians were as arrogant as anybody else. Oh, no, this rootstock's going to be fine. It failed in South Africa. We're we're okay. It's just eerie what happened. A guy named Guheen in in 1980 in Napa Valley had a few dead vines in one of his vineyards. And he thought that was kind of odd. Next year, it had spread. And there were a bunch of dead vines. And he got the guys from Davis and he said, hey, I got these dead vines over here. They're really weird. And the professors from Davis came over and said, yeah, it's really weird. No wonder what's going on. They pulled the vines up and oops. <laughs> and they said, oh, geez, because these things are grafted on A&R1. It's supposed to be okay. Yeah. But it turns out that A&R1 was exactly like the French and the South Africans had said. It failed. And so between 1980 and 1990 in California, it cost them a billion dollars to replant all of the vines that were on A&R1. So we're not 100 years in the past anymore. We're three, four decades in the past that this hit. Exactly. And it's still out there. And the minute we let, look, it's Darwin. The bug is working as hard as it can to find a way around our defenses. (laughs) It's going to be that way forever. It is a never-ending battle. I mean, it's evolution. The price of wine is eternal vigilance. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Without question. (laughs) And the only way they could keep the Cabernet and Chardonnay and everything alive in Europe up until now against the American diseases is by spraying the hell out of them. 70% of the pesticides used in Europe are on grapevines. 70%. Wow. And the EU about five years ago said, look, we can't keep this up. We've got to cut pesticide use, and that means we've got to cut pesticide use in the vineyards because that's where 70% of the pesticides are being used. So that's why the French have finally caved and started to allow hybrids, American hybrids, to be used in their top-quality wines. They've been fighting it ever since. The last big restriction was in in 1953. They cracked down on American hybrids because they said they were low-quality, which is bullshit, but it was political. And they're back now. They have to be back because that's the only way you can cut down the use of pesticide in European grapevines is by having some American genes in there. Well, this has been fascinating. This is something I knew absolutely nothing about coming into it. And I'm just thrilled to learn about it and appreciate you telling me all about it. Okay, Dave. Well, thanks. Been fun talking to you. I had a realization when making this episode, or maybe it's better to call it a reaffirmation, that one of the things I most enjoy about pilgrimage is how it functions for me as a kind of locus of study, through which I learn about all kinds of different stuff. On its own, I probably wouldn't be particularly drawn to viticulture or agricultural science. I've never been inclined to read about that. Learning from Dr. Gale about phylloxera, though, or from Michelle Crawford about Aubrac cattle, I'm suddenly captivated. Having that kind of personalizing link transforms the subject matter into something relevant, applicable, helpful. It changes the way that I look at the places I'm walking through on pilgrimage in the same way that pilgrimage changes my view of that subject matter. And the best part of all of that is that there's really no limits. 
because pilgrimage cuts through pretty much every aspect of human life. It's an endless field of study, and that's certainly a big part of what keeps me coming back here, as it allows me to bring back more to the trail. That is to say, many more episodes to come, I hope. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Bronwyn Perry for speaking with me about the GR65. You can find Bronwyn's Slinging Wisdom in the GR65 via Podiensis Facebook group. And thanks as well to George Gale. His book, Dying on the Vine, How Phylloxera Transformed Wine, is a pricier academic publication, but you can find some used copies through bookfinder.com. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again next week. Maybe my baby will never see me again.